welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. One of the titles Jesus has given in Isaiah 9 is Prince of Peace. We are told that there will be no end to the increase of peace he brings. Is the peace he brings just the absence of conflict, or is it something more? Teaching team member Jeff Norris brings us this message entitled The Pursuit of Peace, which covers Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us, then we'll uh, jump into what God has for us this morning. Father, thanks. We give you all the praise and the glory that we are even uh, here this morning, that, that we're taking breaths. Every breath we take is mercy from you. You have granted us life, and so we give thanks. Uh, and even more than that, you haven't just given us life. You've given us your son, who is the way into eternal life. And so we worship you, Jesus, this morning. You are the name in which we exalt. And we pray, oh, Father, that, uh, that even as we spend these few moments together, that they would be transformative, that you would, as we open your scriptures, you would speak to us, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, even as we heard in the video this morning. Jesus, you said, he who has ears, let him hear. So we pray that we would hear your gospel well this morning and we would run to you. Would you do it for your glory? Would you empower us and fill us with your Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes when I'm in my office or at home and I'm opening this, this thing up, this Bible, I, I ask myself, do I realize what I am opening when I open this? Am I mindful of what I'm doing? Am I mindful of that this is the Word of God, that the Scriptures themselves tell us that this is God's Word, breathe to us by man, that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it pierces between both joint and marrow, and it shapes us and transforms us into the people that God would have us be, that he originally created us to be. This is the primary way through, whom, uh, through which God speaks to us. And sometimes we can just open this even on a Sunday morning and maybe not realize what it is that we are encountering here, who it is that we are encountering here. I get excited about that. I, even this week as I was studying this passage that we're going to look at, I mean, I, I felt myself going, I can't wait to share this with, with, with the church on Sunday. And it, it reminded me of a couple of weeks ago, I'm in the car with two of my daughters. We're on our way to basketball practice. We've got one of their friends in the car with us. And my two girls, um, two older girls start talking to their friend about, you've got to see these two houses in our neighborhood. Dad, can we go see these two houses? I mean, these, these houses every year are like full Clark Griswold. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, they're, they are fully arrayed in all these lights, all the, you know, the, the roof is covered, everything. It's amazing. And so can we, set, can we show her? Can we show her? Can we show her? I said, okay, we'll, we'll come back by there on the way back from practice. And their excitement, they were little evangelists for these houses. You've got to see this house. It's amazing got to see the lights and that's that's how I feel this morning is you got to see the light of the gospel you got to see what God has in his word and I hope you feel the excitement with me this Christmas that it's not just another story about people who had a baby in a barn but it's about God who came to earth to rescue his people from their sins and to give them eternal life 
There's joy in that, even as we've sung this morning. So I want to read to you a passage that maybe, I want you to read it with me, that uh, maybe is one that you wouldn't expect me to turn to. I'm going to tell you to turn to Micah 5. Micah chapter 5. Micah's in the Old Testament. Please feel free to use your table of contents. It is in the back of the Old Testament, in the white pages, the places we never go. We never underline. But it's tucked in back there, and it's, there's a passage in there that I want to read to us this morning and study for a little bit this morning that points us to the, uh, to the birth of Christ, to the coming of the Savior. I'm going to read to you just a few verses from Micah 5, starting in verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And then that last little phrase that I'll read, first part of verse 5, and he shall be their peace. I'm going to talk about peace this morning. I realize that it's the week of joy in Advent. So uh, I'm off on the week, so bear with me. Uh, I told the 9 o'clock, I said, uh, we're in joy. I'm going to pre- uh, preach on peace, so just uh, get over it. So, you may have heard me read that right then and go, okay, Jeff, um, not feeling the excitement with you, man. Bethlehem Ephrathah, what is that? I, I want to I give you a little context as to what's going on in Micah and who Micah is and, and how long ago he wrote. And then I want to read through it again and just kind of stop with each phrase that he gives us and give a little explanation. It won't be terribly long. I just want to give a quick little teaching on this passage and then I want to zoom in on that last phrase that we read there that he shall be uh, our peace. But he starts out by saying this. Well, actually, before I read that, let me give you a little context on Micah. So Micah, Micah is writing, this is one of the things that blows my mind about this passage and about a lot of the passage in the Old Testament. Micah is writing roughly 700 years before Christ was born. Okay, think about that for just a second. Don't let that number just kind of go out and not fall where it needs to land. Think about 700 years. I think sometimes we can throw large numbers out and not get the extent of the length of time. I mean, think about it this way. Uh, United States of America is 242 years old. Right? I love American history. If I see a house from the early 1800s, I'm freaking out. I'm like, that is so old. It's not old. We're not an old country. 700 years. I mean, this is like, you know, back when William Wallace was fighting for Scottish freedom, right? This is this seven, or maybe it was Mel Gibson, I can't remember. But um, <laughs> I mean, that long ago, right? It was like if somebody wrote at that point in time, 700 years ago, about something that would take place today, and they nailed it. It, it all happened exactly as they said it would. And it wasn't just Micah. Micah was a prophet. By the way, a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God because they hear the word of the Lord. They didn't have this full Bible that we have now back then. They had the, the books of Moses, 
the, early, the earliest books in the, in the Old Testament. But God spoke to his people in this day and time through prophets where he would speak to this man and he would then speak to God's people. And a lot of it was judgment. I'll get back to that in just a moment. But it wasn't just Micah who was prophesying and predicting about where the Messiah, the, the Savior, the Rescuer, the Christ would come from and when he would come and what the circumstances would be. It was a lot of these guys, a lot of the prophets. You, you read in your Bible about these guys, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Malachi, Nahum, Zephaniah. These are the guys that God would use to speak to his people and a lot of these guys predicted when and how and where Jesus would come. Now, it's, it's crazy to think uh, this thought. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. 300. Uh, prophecies about Jesus, about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Mathematically speaking, the probability that one person could decide, you know what, I'm going to dupe the world. And I'm going to, I know I've read the Old Testament. I know all of these prophecies about how the Messiah will come. And I want to, I want to just fool everyone. And so I'm going to fulfill those prophecies. Or let's make it even just something really simplistic. I'm going to fulfill just eight of those prophecies. Eight of the 300 plus. The number is staggering. It's, it's around the ballpark of one in 400 quadrillion. I can't even say it of the chances that someone would have to be able to fulfill these prophecies because so much of these prophecies are things that a human can't control. Where you're born, what's happening when you're born. All these things that you have no ability to say, yeah, I'll do that and I'll fool the world and make them think that I'm the long-awaited Messiah. So you get this first verse here. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Starts with but. What, what is he contrasting here? Let me give you this context and then we'll jump into it a little, uh, a little more quickly. If you were to read through the book of Micah, up until this point, as you're getting to chapter 5, you're ready to give up reading. Or maybe you have given up reading. Because it is depressing. It's gloom and doom and judgment. It's God speaking to his people, basically saying, if you continue in your disobedience, disobedience, if you continue to worship other gods in my place, if you continue in this course of idolatry and you continue to not repent of your sin and come back to the one true God, the God of Israel, then judgment will come. And here's how it's going to come. And it's nasty. It's going to come at the hands of the Assyrians, this nation that will oppress you and disperse you. And Micah is writing about this and he's warning them. And then it's in that context that he gives these just few verses here before he goes back into some more judgment. As if to say to the people of God, hey, look, I know I'm coming on strong here and it's not me, it's the Lord speaking through me. And he's letting you know what's about to happen if there is no repentance. But just so you know, he has not forgotten his promises. Just so you know, he has not forgotten his covenant. Just so you know, he has not forgotten what he said all the way back at the very beginning when sin was minutes old. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you got Adam and Eve in the garden and they've blown it. They've eaten of the fruit and sin has entered into the world and hasn't just entered into the world, it has entered into the bloodstream of mankind. 
You and I, every single one of us, every single person who's walked the face of the earth since Adam and Eve is born with what you might call the Adamic residue, the the residue of Adam in our hearts, meaning that we are not born good or pure. We're not born sinless and then then we become sinful because we do some act of sin. We, We are born sinful because we are born with the heart of Adam, with the residue of Adam, with the nature of Adam. And so God is pronouncing the curse upon Adam and Eve in the garden because they have allowed sin to enter into the world by their free will. And it's in the midst of this curse, kind of similar to Micah right here, that he gives this, this little snippet of hope. He says, but just, just remember that there will be one who comes who will crush the head of the serpent. And then he continues the curse. And if you're not looking for it, you might even miss it. But God remembers his promises. He goes back and he says, look, I haven't forgotten you. So Bethlehem Ephrathah, the forgotten tribe, not tribe, but clan. Listen to what he says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, which by the way, Bethlehem Ephrathah, think like St. Paul, Minneapolis. Kind of like same place, right together. Ephrathah is really kind of the region that Bethlehem's in. Bethlehem's this little village. It says, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem, by and large, was a forgotten little village. Estimates we don't really know. Best guesses are anywhere from 300 to 1,000 people when Jesus was born there in this little town just outside of Jerusalem. The only reason that people even recognized the name of Bethlehem was because that's where King David was born. If David had not been born there, it would have truly been forgotten. There's places in the book of Joshua where they're listing the, the clans who are reporting to, to fight in war, and they don't even listen, uh, list the clan or the people from Bethlehem. Forgotten little village, but it's going to be an insignificant town that is going to be the birthplace of the Messiah in the line of David. It says this, from you, verse 2, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in or over Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. This is what is quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. When the shepherds, uh, when the angels show up and begin to, uh, I'm sorry, when the three wise men, I said three, we don't know it's three, I I gave that sermon last year. Um, When the wise men show up and they begin to learn that it's going to be through Bethlehem, that the Savior is born. So he quotes this passage here from Micah Micah chapter 2. But then he says this, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. That's a nod in two directions. One is this, it's hearkening them back to remember, I haven't forgotten the promise that I gave to David. Those many generations ago when I told David in 2 Samuel 7 where it's recorded for us that it would be one who would come from his line, the line of King David, who would be a true and better king. So it's, it's taking these people back to that promise, but then it's also reminding these people, or maybe they didn't fully understand, that the one who will come is also eternal, infinite, no beginning and no end, the ancient of days. I used to ask in all those years that I did college ministry, I'd, I used to ask college students just kind of as a joke, well, when, did, when did Jesus, how long has Jesus been around? And without thinking, most of them will respond 2,000 years. And on one hand, they're right. That's when we knew him as Jesus. But it's a little bit of a trick question because the Son of God, who now we know is Jesus, has been around eternity past 
and will be around eternity future. Even so much so that we begin to understand in the New Testament that there are uh, insights that we have that we didn't get in the Old Testament that it's actually through Jesus and by Jesus that we were created. You think about that. Colossians 1 and John 1 talk about that it, that it was the Father who spoke creation into being, but we then get a little snippet into how creation worked and that it's the Son the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who actually was kind of the hands of creation, shaping and forming. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this, that we were created by Jesus, meaning you and me, people, were created by Jesus and for Jesus, naming Jesus specifically. So we begin to understand that this Son of God who's going to show up in Bethlehem for us now 2,000 years ago, is the God of the world who created you and me for him. Created by him and for him. He is the ancient of days. Therefore, verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. This is a nod towards Mary, the one who will literally be in labor. But it's also a little bit of, a, of an allegory towards Israel who will wait and wait and wait and think the Messiah is never coming. And then he will come. One of the things that might be helpful for you to understand is that while Micah was alive prophesying this, the judgment that God warned came. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came and ransacked and took over Israel, defeated them, and the 10 northern tribes of Israel were dispersed among the nations, never to be tribes again. They left only two tribes, and that became the southern, those were the two southern tribes that we became, uh, that came to know as as Judah. And Judah hung around for almost 200 more years, but in 586 B.C., because of their disobedience, they too were attacked and taken over, not this time by the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians. So from 586 until the time of Jesus, they knew no king, at least not a good one. They didn't hear from God from any prophet like Micah for 400 years. They were pregnant with anticipation. When will he come? When will he come? When will he come? The long-awaited Messiah. Then when he comes, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Some debate on what does this mean. Here's my quick take on this. As I've read different commentaries, it would simply be this. In the New Testament, Jesus is described to us In in a lot of different contexts, one of the things that he is described as is our older brother. If you believe upon Christ and you place your faith in him, it means you've moved into the family of God as a son and daughter of God, which means that Christ is your older brother who has won your inheritance for you. The older brother in that culture would get the inheritance and he has won the inheritance from God the Father and given it to all his brothers and sisters. So when Christ comes or when he came, Those who believe upon him will gather with him as the new Israel, which is the church, under the work of their older brother. And then it says this, verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Jesus shows up on the scene, and once he enters into his ministry, what does he say about himself? One of the things he says is he says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know me and they hear my voice and they follow me. 
Now, we're going to preach on this. We're actually going to start a series the second week of January on the seven I am statements of Jesus. So we're going to teach on the good shepherd. So I'm not going to tell you anymore. You've got to come back for that. But he was the good shepherd who led his sheep well and continues to lead his sheep well. The church in triumphal procession, as the scriptures say. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In that same passage in John chapter 10 that I just alluded to where, where, um, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In that same passage, he says this. He says, my sheep know me. They follow me because they know my voice. And then he says this, and he says, And the ones that the Father gives to me, I hold in my hands, and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. And then he goes even further to say, And the Father, who is greater than all, holds them in his hands, and no one can snatch them out of his hands. So you've got double security from the Son of God and the Father God himself. So when Micah says, makes this prophecy, Then they will dwell secure, he wasn't lying. They thought it meant militarily. They thought it meant politically. What they didn't understand was it meant that the Savior was coming who would reorient you by faith in him to the Father in such a way that you could never, ever, ever, ever be forsaken by the God of the universe because of the work and love of Jesus on your behalf. They will dwell secure. Look at that last phrase, though. This is where I want to drill in for our remaining time. First part of verse 5. And he shall be their peace. He says this, and he goes back into judgment. We get this one one little snippet. But oh, what a snippet it is. He shall be their peace. Friends, this is huge. Jesus shows up, and once he becomes an adult and he begins his ministry, he begins to show all the ways in which he is our peace. I love that in the inauguration, really, the, the, the beginning, the incarnation, when, when Christ is coming, the, the shepherds are in the field, and the angel has said to them, I bring you great news, good news of great joy. And then he quotes and he says, the angel says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. Peace is coming, my people. Peace is here, my people. Make your hearts ready. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, when he's getting ready to go to the cross, and pay for our sins. He says to his disciples on the last night that he had with them, one of the things he said to them in John 14, 27, and he says, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, but not as the world gives peace. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's all over the scriptures. Later on, Paul is writing, and he's given this command followed by a a promise where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. He came to be our peace. One of the reasons I get so excited about thinking about this is because I feel in my own heart 
And I've talked with enough people in my, in my lifetime to know we long for peace. We want it so badly. We look for it anywhere we can find it. And it always feels like it's a little bit like jello in our fingers. That the more I try to grip it, the more it squeezes out. Just to emphasize that a little bit more, in 2016, Forbes published an article. 700 people were surveyed and asked, if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would that be? One of the top answers was peace. This is what the author of the article said, we long for peace desperately, peace from noise, chatter, pressure, responsibilities. We also want peace from the pain and thumping inside our own heads. The conflicts and strain we inflict on ourselves every minute to be better, stronger, smarter, prettier, thinner, better parents, fill in the blank. This author I agree with so far, I say, yes, that resonates with me. I'm going to read the rest of the quote later. But we resonate with that. We say, yes, that is my daily experience. That's what I feel. I long for peace. But what, what is peace? Do we even know how to define it? Pretty much every language that's ever existed has had a word for peace that's pretty much getting at the absence of conflict or war or chaos, which is beautiful. Man, we, who wouldn't want that? Right? We look at the world around us and it's anything but at peace. There's war everywhere. There's turmoil everywhere, circumstantially, for sure. We look inwardly and we feel our hearts in turmoil as well. But how does the world define peace? When the Bible defines peace, the Bible uh, speaks to something that is not just the absence of chaos, not just the absence of war and conflict, but in that absence, in place of that absence, there's something more. And rather than me continue to explain this to you, I want you to watch a video. These are videos that I would encourage you to go find. Great little, I don't, I don't know, I, I need to look more into uh, where they're based out of, but there's a, there's a group called the Bible Project. I think they're based out of Seattle. But they put together these great videos that explain the Bible to us. And so they put one together on peace. And on this word in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament that in Hebrew was shalom. Maybe you heard that before, Shalom. That's the word for peace in Hebrew. That's the word that Micah uses in this passage. He shall be our shalom. I love that. Helps us get a fuller, as he said, rich, richer concept and understanding of peace, of what is meant in the Bible when, when the writers of Scripture, God himself says peace. One of the things they said in there that it really stood out to me, says the core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. I, I suspect that there are many of us in the room this morning who have looked and searched and longed and clamored and grasped for peace only to find it ever elusive. 
And my hope and prayer is that this morning, even as we talk about this, that the Lord will be pressing on your heart in such a way to where you're realizing that for the very first time, an epiphany is happening, an awareness of ha- is happening, even right this moment, this going, oh, I've always looked for it in all the wrong places. Because there's a world, there's the way that the world defines peace, of how to get it. The author that I referred to earlier she continued to say this, to say this, peace I've found doesn't come from being better at anything or even figuring anything out. Attaining peace is a practice that we need to cultivate and commit to. Peace today will never just fall in our laps. It's too chaotic of a world. We have to carve out space within ourselves and in our lives to bring forward the experience of peace. Then do the work to expand peace as a feeling and experience that we'll commit to daily, regardless of what's around us. You don't have to know your purpose to be at peace. You just have to commit to being at peace and building daily practices that will support you in that commitment. Now, you may read that and go, oh, that makes sense. I say, um, you know what I hear? I hear Charlie Brown's mom. You know, just wah, 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 wah. Was that Charlie Brown? Anyway. It's well intended, I mean, no offense to the author, but that is simply summed up triharderism. Commit to finding peace. Listen to the language again. We need to do the work to expand peace. Okay, that's fine in, in a sense. Commit to daily, have to commit to being at peace, build daily practice. Okay, all this stuff that's just self-improvement, triharderism. What if, what if it was this though? What if peace was not something that we had to strive for, for but peace was a person to find? You see, peace is not fundamentally an experience or a philosophy or a circumstance. Peace is a person and his name is Jesus. He shall be our peace. And for many of us, Christian, I'm talking to you as well, we know peace, we know Jesus, we've experienced his peace, we know him to be our shalom, the one who doesn't just remove conflict, which he will, when he comes again, the second time he comes, but the one who replaces that absence of conflict with himself. And he, br- he brings completeness and wholeness, the very thing that we were created for in the beginning that we lost in the garden. He brings to restore everything that's broken within us. And then eventually everything that's broken around us. He is the shalom rescuer. Christians, sometimes we know peace, we've experienced peace, but for whatever reason, we've gotten sidetracked and we've been chasing after peace in all the wrong places. Others of us in this room have never known Jesus. We've never placed our faith in Christ. We don't even know if this whole Jesus thing is something to to be about. But you know this, as you listen to me talk this morning, you are becoming possibly, hopefully, prayerfully aware that, yeah, the Bible's right. I've been looking for peace in all these places. Maybe I've missed it this whole time. Maybe it's not an experience. It's a person. Will you run to him? Maybe you're listening to me and you go, Jeff, you don't know my circumstance. There's no way to find peace, none whatsoever. 
My heart would be I want to empathize with you because I know that, as Randy said earlier in the service, we, this is a hard season for many, many people. It's supposed to be joyful, but we feel anything but joy. It's supposed to be hopeful. We feel anything but hope. It's supposed to be about peace. We feel anything but peace. I came across this yesterday. Unbelievable. I want to read something to you that you may not connect the dots at first, but I simply want you to keep this in mind. There is peace when you know Jesus in any circumstance. Came across this yesterday. Many of you are aware of the persecution that's happening in China to those who are believers and even to Muslims. But many, many Christians are being persecuted in China right now under a new regime, under a new president that's been in play now for about four years, and he's ratcheting it up. And it's gotten a lot of press in the last week or two, but what you may not realize is it's actually been going on for a while. Uh, Earlier this year, I'm just going to read this part. On May 12th, police raided a prayer meeting at Early Rain Covenant Church, detained upwards of 200 members, including children. Some members were beaten. Afterward, fifth graders from Early Rain Covenant Reformed Academy wrote letters to their persecutors. I want to read to you snippets of a letter from one of these fifth graders whose dad is still being detained. He says, Dear esteemed police officer, Hello, I am Early Rain Covenant Reformed Academy fifth grader Zhu Yuhang. I probably butchered that, but give me grace. Greetings to you all. As I write this letter, I have many questions. He goes on to ask some questions about why they were arrested, and he brings out some of the laws that are written in the law books of China. But then he gets to a point where he says this, but I want to tell you that the names of the people you are beating are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We hope that your names may also be written in it, which is why I want to share the gospel with you through paper and pen like the apostles of the Lord who wrote the Bible. I hope you still have the Bibles you confiscated. That way you can read them. You say that you've come to our church, but you didn't come to listen to the preaching of the word. May God give you grace so that one day you may come in order to eagerly listen to the word of God. Do you still remember those Bibles and tracts? I really do hope you can read them because they are treasures, especially the Bible. The Bible records many of the words and acts of Jesus, his humble birth in Bethlehem, how he died for the sake of love And how he rose in glory three days later. He has already come once and he will come again. And that day is near. I really hope you can visit our church and hear the word. Because the more you understand the Bible, the better you will understand God. My family, my church, and I hope that you will come and be baptized. May you believe in the Lord soon. For the time is near. Sharing the gospel with you, a fifth grader from the church, Zhu Yuang. If a fifth grader whose daddy has been taken by the government of the country that he lives in, and he was arrested himself, can know peace in such a way, not through a circumstance, but through the person of Jesus, that he can write a letter like that? then we can rest assured that peace is not a circumstance, it's not a philosophy, it's not an experience fundamentally. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. And he came to rescue you and me from our sins. Will you run to him? Let me pray. Father, thank you 
for this time together. Thank you for your grace that we get to open the Word of God. Thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of people all over this world. Right here in Johns Creek, Georgia, and in China, in the Middle East, Europe, all over Asia. God, you're at work and you are bringing peace to your people. And we look forward to the day, we long for the day that you will come again and we will experience your peace, your shalom in full and the completedness, the wholeness of what you came to bring will be fully realized. But as we get it in morsels now, we pray, oh God, that we would rest in you. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.